Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. Walt Disney Corporation, of course, claimed that... Walt Disney Corporation claimed that America was founded on, quote, systemic racism and encouraged employees to complete a, quote, white privilege checklist. Under this law, that is a violation of your civil rights. There you have it, Robert Gibbs. Governor DeSantis of Florida has finally found a worthy opponent, Mickey Mouse, and he's, he's playing it to the hilt. I didn't have civil rights crusader on my Ron DeSantis bingo card. Did you have that on your? I, I was. Uh, I don't know, but well, let, let's ask. It's an interesting guy, moniker. Let's ask a guy who is now a DeSantis expert, having gone down there for his show, The Circus, uh, to take a look at the DeSantis uh, phenomenon. Our old buddy Mark McKinnon, Mac. Good to see you. First class private hackeroo reporting for duty, <laughs> sirs. How are you? We've promoted you to corporal. You're right. you're 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 a corporal now. All let's right. see how he does. Oh, you want to wait on the promo? Oh, sorry. We hand out the promotions at the end, not the beginning. And we should point out that our buddy, uh, Mike Murphy, uh, was to be here today. He's a little under the weather. And Gibbs, good to see you. McKinnon, talk about DeSantis, because I, I, you know, I still believe Donald Trump's going to be the nominee of the Republican Party. But if he's not, this guy's making a pretty big play for it. And he's using Florida as a kind of staging area for a culture war candidacy. No question, Axe. I mean, he's got a, a kind of a Republican laboratory of culture wars going on down there. And if Trump's the 800-pound gorilla, DeSantis is the 700-pound gorilla right behind him. And we spent the last week down there sort of investigating what's going on. And once you get down there, you clearly see why. I mean, this guy is, uh, I mean, he's got a lot of the Trump sort of attributes, uh, but and more. And I, I sort of tell my Democratic friends, if, if you're worried about Trump, you should maybe really be worried about DeSantis. Um, yeah. Because he is very calculating. He, he's he got a shtick that, you know, comes across as very authentic, which is, I don't back down from nothing. Right, right. And people love it. And he's tapped into these culture wars. In a, I mean, he just, he's the tip of the spear on all this stuff, on critical race theory, on banning textbooks, on... Uh, yeah. on don't uh, say and, gay. Don't yeah. say gay. And who would th- who would have thought, you know, not long ago that a, a Republican governor would rise on the wave of attacking not just a corporation, but the most popular corporation in America, the Walt Disney Company, yeah. and come out on top, yeah. uh, come yeah. out ahead. And so it's really interesting, uh, but I think it's a real preview of the kind of campaigns we're going to campaigning we're going to see not just in the midterms but probably in 2024 this is the culture wars they have the and we saw it with Yunkin in Virginia DeSantis is kind of refining that but it's this whole parental rights shtick which you know is really tapping into a post covid yeah uh, uh ethos that everybody's like yeah I mean we kind of stopped paying attention to the schools and what's going on over there what are they doing and what are they teaching and what is this with you know you know boys swimming and girls events and man I just tell you and we, and we have people on our show who you know who who are parroting a lot of this stuff and you listen to it and you can see they're you know it it, it doesn't sound too crazy <laughs> you yeah know? well, well I would say 
to your point too, Mark, you know, he's in a state, a big state, by the way, an important state. And like it or not, he's doing all this stuff, right? To your point, the Tom Cottons of the world, uh, the, the, the Hollies of the world, the Cruises of the world are going to talk about, here's what we should do. And Ron DeSantis is going to be able to say, yeah, I did that. Yeah. I did that in the yeah. third largest state. Yeah. And he's using this run up to his own reelection bid uh, in an, again, like it or not, a very shrewd way uh, for positioning inside of what I think everyone presumes will be a Republican presidential primary. Yeah, well, we'll we'll see what happens. You know, I still, as I said, I think that uh, we're all underestimating Trump's hold on that party, and we'll talk more about that. But uh, here's what's interesting to me about DeSantis and the way he's positioning himself. You know, uh, Gibbs, you've heard it a million times, my my theory about replicas and remedies that people don't, when you, you know, they, they judge the president they have and they don't look for the replica, they look for the remedy. Right. What are the things that are most uh, worrisome to people about Biden? That he's old and that he's weak. That Those are the raps that you hear uh, about him. And here comes DeSantis, who's in his 40s and, you know, muscular as all get out pushing people around. It isn't just that he passed this uh, this bill about not uh, talking uh, to uh, kids in the younger grades about uh, about anything to do with sexuality. So, for example, if, if, a, if a kid says, why does, uh, I had this uh, discussion with Sarah Longwell on my, uh, on my uh, other podcast, The Axe Files, this week, uh, you know, and she is a she's gay and she has a child. And she says, you know, if 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 someone says, why does Billy have two moms and, and, and not a mom and a dad? A teacher can't answer the question, even in the most benign way, without exposing themselves to uh, prosecution. But that's not the scenario that people are being told. They're being told that these kids are going to be recruited into it kind of almost merges into yeah. QAnon stuff groomed but it, yeah but groomed yes but he uh so that is um he's done that he's done the critical race thing he also just stole basically a couple of congressional seats for the republicans he basically blew up the map that the republican legislature drew and he substituted a map where he just grabbed a couple more seats. Uh, now there'll be constitutional challenges uh, over racial gerrymandering and so on. But uh, he faced down his own his own party legislature. Twice he faced them down, David. I mean, they brought yes. two yeah. two maps that they loved. They said not enough. Yes, he is at right now as we sit here. He has a seventy two percent favorable rating among Republicans. That's pretty big for a governor of a state, right? That, yeah, and uh, 55 overall with Democrats and independents. Uh, I mean, he's a really interesting character, but I don't know whether he is actually playing for the nomination in 2024, and he may go for it, but or just preparing himself. He's going to get reelected. He could easily resurface as a candidate in, in uh, 28 as well, but he's worth watching. And, and I'll say this too. I mean, it's not just that people in Florida are noticing. I'm on a flight Thursday night to go to North Carolina working on my hacks newsletter guy next to me notices toward the very end of the flight. I got a hat and a mask on. So he doesn't know that uh, I'm now <laughs> conducting a Republican focus group. And you know, the first, the two people that he mentioned, Trump and DeSantis. Yeah. Uh, no, DeSantis loves, is the default candidate love, right loves now. Loves Trump. But when I asked him, okay, if it came down to Trump or DeSantis, you know, he, he smiled and, and didn't want to give me a, a, an answer. By the way, 
very also convinced the election was completely stolen. Yeah, that that's your average Republican, right? Yeah, now. It, so it fits the bill. And like I said, he it, it's no no mistake that he, he you know he goes on on Fox repeatedly, often, and spreads this. And it's why you know if it's not Trump, and I agree with you, David. Right now, the the relative strength of Trump, I, I I'm, I'd still put my last five dollars on. Uh, but if it's going to be somebody else, that person right now looks like Ron DeSantis. You got to go a long way to get to your last five dollars. But McKinnon says who says you, you know, that DeSantis, I mean, what, what he's displayed, what we know is he's got big brass balls. He's also got a short fuse, you know, the flip side of that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, you and I have both been we all everybody on this show has been through a few presidential races. So you understand the process and how basically it is a long oral exam where the spotlight is on you at all times. Uh, so, you know, wh- while we're talking about how formidable he is with all of the stuff that he is doing uh, within the Republican Party, uh, what we don't know is how he'd hold up under a process. I saw him yell at a bunch of school kids for wearing masks. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's a great question, David. Uh, first, first of all, let me just say that it really is remarkable what he has done, given the given the the... the the significant field of potential Republican wannabes, but beyond Trump, right? I mean, you got a lot: Cruz, Hawley, Cotton, Pence, uh, Haley. I mean, it's a it's a it's yeah, a pretty Pence, formidable yeah. Pence. I mean, it's a pretty formidable crew. And DeSantis beats the crap out of all of them by a long shot. So he now what he has done is pretty remarkable to come as far as he has. But to your point, David, um, he has he has not really been under the hot national spotlight or the spotlight of a presidential election which burns like a microwave and and he rolls he rolls really tightly and when i say that i mean it's kind of him and his wife and like one or two other people and he does not condone any dissent from anybody anywhere anytime and he, as, you, as you guys know so well running a governor's race is a whole lot different than running a presidential race and you can't run it with four people and and you've and so there's there's some liabilities there i mean i mean if if trump's the model he may think that you know i don't have to i I can do it but i just no one knows no one knows like i didn't know and gibbs didn't know how barack obama who was really you know not tested in the national yeah. spotlight how he would handle that process we don't know how DeSantis will handle that process because they're throwing uh, they're throwing fastballs at your head all the time in that process and he's not going to like it and his whole thing is i don't back down and you know that that will be tested pretty heavily in a presidential and like i said he, he's he's got a fuse and he kind of likes to blow the fuse but you know when that happens on a national platform rather than you know, down in the panhandle, that could be a whole yeah. different deal. Gibbs, you know who blew, who uh, apparently blew a fuse uh, after uh, January sixth was uh, Kevin McCarthy and and Mitch McConnell blew fuses uh, uh, over what uh, happened on January sixth and Trump's role in it, and then quickly uh, got in line. And now we've got uh, yeah, the electrician visited and fixed the fuses, from what I could tell. Yeah, or short circuited <laughs> them. I don't know. But now, you know, uh, our buddy J-Mart and Alex Burns from the Times have this book, This Shall Not Pass. It was interesting what happened last week because they wrote in their book that McCarthy had talked openly about asking Trump to resign and condemning what Trump had done with his, you know, among his colleagues and so on. Uh, And he uh, vehemently denied it. And then they 
They set them up, man. They had tape. They had the receipts. (laughs) Roll roll the tape. The only discussion I would have with him is that I think this will pass, and it would be my recommendation we should be done. Um, I mean, that would be my take, but I don't think he would take it, but I don't know. So uh, what he was talking about was impeachment, that he thought impeachment would pass and that Trump uh, should resign. Uh, and there was obviously more to it. I wonder how, I mean, I, what do you think, how did that land over at Mar-a-Lago, you guys? Well, I will say this. First of all, Washington has lost several pounds collectively in the last week, sweating out what's going to be in the rest of this J-Mart book. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of <laughs> nervous people uh, listening listening to tape of a recorded basically caucus conversation uh you, you know it's um, well, yeah, well let me just say washington could stand to lose a few pounds so maybe that's good <laughs> i don't know but it's, uh, uh i'm gonna i'll reserve the based on my weight at the moment i'll reserve judgment <laughs> on such a thing yeah um, i mean me too but no it's um you know he he i mean he flat out got caught lying right he 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 denied that he ever said it they put out a long statement that he ever said it look I'm, i mean he's still denying it uh, even after, uh, even after uh, they went on TV and and played the tape, so yeah, we just we, we just talked about how Trump could will probably be the nominee of the party again. I don't think lying is an impardonable sin. In, not not days. just that, David. Not that it's not impardonable, but at, at this point in the Republican Trump Party, you get yeah. rewarded for lying and you pay a price for telling the truth. Right. There's no consequences to this. There's no, I mean, we may talk about it. Are there going to be any consequences to all the texting around January 6th? Is Mark Meadows going to pay some sort of price? Is Marjorie Taylor Greene going to pay some sort of price? To your point, you know, the the one thing I would say to our last conversation, DeSantis may get pushed. I doubt it'll be by the media because he'll just, he'll use that as a shield, maybe as other opponents. But I, I think right now, to, to Mark's point, if you don't lie, you're not cool in the Republican Party. That's kind of the purity test now is it yeah. whether you lie or not. Right. But the question is, how does Trump play this? Because now he's got, he's got Kevin uh, McCarthy completely by the balls. I think he plays it by currying more favor, David. Yeah. I think he's like, okay, Kevin, well... I'm, I may let you off the hook here, but you, yeah. you just put a bunch more in my bank, buddy. And we know that a week after uh, McCarthy made the statements that we heard on that tape and other statements that he flew down to Mar-a-Lago and kissed the ring. So, you know, he, he knows which way the wind is blowing uh, and he is going to uh, he is going to adjust uh, accordingly. But I don't think yeah. he just kissed his ring, but that's <laughs> aside. Yeah, yeah. that's just an aside. Yeah, that's where he started. He started at the ring. <laughs> yeah. I think he uh I think the that the uh the former president wears his rings on the hem of his uh on the rear <laughs> hem of his jacket. So uh. Axios had an interesting report last night that Republicans are getting ready not just as we presumed at some point to try to impeach Joe Biden, but also to impeach a a, a significant number of his cabinet, starting with the Homeland Security uh secretary. And you know, I I think People have surmised this is the beginning of the ransom uh, that Donald Trump is going to use, just so people understand uh, once in our nation's history as a cabinet secretary uh, been impeached. And now it looks like it's not just going to be one, but but many. Uh, yeah. And so this is the the price that that Trump is going to hold over McCarthy's head. And, you know, we saw this with J.D. Vance's endorsement in Ohio. 
He's on tape saying he's a never Trumper. And and Trump seems to like the idea of, hey, you know what? You're against yeah. me, but now now you answer to me. That makes that's his strength. Not just a never Trumper. He compared him to Hitler. <laughs> yeah. But he meant it in a nice way. Yeah. <laughs> he meant it in a nice way. I mean, in fairness, you know, this thing about impeachment, just as an aside, and I think I've said this here before. One thing, if I were if if I were the Democrats, what I would be exploring is, um, you know, what people. I think the biggest thing that people are sensing now is a feeling of sort of chaos that things are kind of out of control. Uh, how's that? How's it going to be exactly when Kevin McCarthy and Jim Jordan and those guys come along and and their focus is going to be impeach the president, impeach cabinet members, hold investigation. I think the balance here is going to be, or the opportunity for Democrats who are so far down the well right now, is that just there's no sort of governor on what the Republicans are doing. And in fact, the impetus is to see just how far they can push it. So the pendulum is just going to swing so damn far out there. And like you said, start impeaching cabinet members at a certain point. I mean, and they'll all be rewarded for that. But at a certain point, we were hoping to get away from the Biden chaos. And this chaos is like, way crazier than that yeah i mean they're they're their chaos party basically they're yeah. saying we're we we are promising here's our platform chaos <laughs> we're going right. to go after the president we're going to go after cabinet members we're going to have investigations every day and there is a chance for democrats to say hey how about like the stuff that is impacting on people's lives shouldn't we spend a few minutes on that or are we just going to have uh you know a bloody warfare in washington where nothing gets done because that's what you're voting for. DeSantis is betting, as we talked about a second ago, is, is betting that all of these things and and his persona age well, right? And and that we certainly don't know. And it may age well in a Republican primary. The question is how will it age well in those suburban voters that switched in twenty sixteen, uh, you know, from Trump to Biden. Secondly, I would say, look, I, I think this is what gives Democrats hope knowing that the shellacking is coming. Right. In 1994, it happened to Clinton and he gets reelected in 1996 because he plays off of a Republican Congress. The shellacking in 2010 ends up with Barack Obama getting uh, reelected in 2012 because he changes his message and runs, uh, you know, as as a referendum uh, on the alternative rather than a referendum on himself. Well, to that point, did you guys see uh, Ron Klain's uh tweet after the French election <laughs> yeah. on Sunday. Yeah. You know, somebody wrote a column, you know, pointing out that Macron had a 36% approval rating and won a landslide in France and uh, Klein uh, uh, <laughs> tweeted that out and uh, for the obvious uh, purpose of saying, you know what, you guys are all focused on his approval rating, but as Biden always says, don't compare me to the uh, almighty, compare me to the alternative. And that's what happened in France. I mean, Macron was unpopular. He was just less unpopular than the neo-fascist opponent uh, that he drew. Uh, yeah. And, and to that point, David, I'll just say that the thing of all the polling we've seen uh, recently and, and, you know, we get a new update every day, but the thing, that, and nothing is all that surprising, but I was really surprised at a recent poll that, you know, at Biden, as unpopular as he is, and you don't get much more unpopular than he is right now. Uh, somebody did a poll that if the election were today and the candidates were Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, Donald Trump Jr., uh, uh, you know, Tom Cotton, Donald Biden beat every one of them. Yeah. yeah. I would say, as it relates to that tweet, David, that's, you know, I'm reminded of that Geico commercial where the lady says, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. As it relates to the the upcoming midterm elections, right? Oh, for it, sure. It, that may work in, 
again, that may work in a one-on-one contest, but I thought the equivalency that Ron and, and others on Twitter uh, on Sunday afternoon were trying to say, look, Democrats can still win in 2022. And look, I, again, I, I, listeners have heard me say this. I, you know, I, I, I keep waiting for the fight to be picked uh, in order to try to change this into a little bit more of a choice rather than a referendum. And uh, the fight doesn't seem to be coming. There are some signs that the White House uh, understands what the score is there because there was a piece last week saying they're bringing our old uh, colleague, uh, Anita Dunn, back. They're bringing a guy over, a kind of a wartime communications guy, to come over to the White House Counsel's office in anticipation of all the subpoenas they're going to be getting from the new Republican Congress. I think they know uh, yep. which way is going. You know, David Wasserman, Dave Wasserman uh, from Cook, who I think is sort of the gold standard in terms of uh, watching these congressional races, just moved eight more Democratic seats in the Republican direction, either seats that were safe that are now leaning Democrat or seats that were leaning Democrat that are now toss-ups. And, uh, you know, I I don't know anyone, maybe you guys do, who kind of thinks this thing is uh, headed in any direction other than like a shellacking again. Yeah, I I don't think there's any doubt. And I think the only real question now is if you won by 10 points uh, as a Democrat, uh, two years ago or 12 points, wh- where's the line in which you feel like you're now underwater? Because, you know, we again, we saw this and we talked about it last week on the show. We saw this sort of 10 point or so shift in the 2021 election results. You know, the real question is just how many seats can Republicans put into play? They, they won, you know, they came out of 2020 actually picking up seats in a year in which Joe Biden gets elected president. So I think many people kind of baked into their prediction well, they already began to pick up some of the easier turf, um, and maybe the the overall number in 2022 won't be so large. But it certainly looks like, um, even with with the absence of anything that would have you know any big event, uh, that the the environment continues to deteriorate for uh, for Democrats. well, not just deteriorate, but I, I think people you know realize that the house is 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 gone, but you yep. know. I think people were sort of hanging on to a sense maybe the Democrats could hold on to the Senate, but now I think the wave's getting so big that it could wash away, you know, seats that were really in the Democrats' target zone to hang on to. Maybe not now. Yeah, Arizona, Georgia. You have to start worrying. Yep, Yep. Pennsylvania. You have to start worrying about those seats. Look, on the House, if I'm McCarthy, I want to uh, expand the caucus as much as I possibly can because the smaller the caucus, the more he is totally at the mercy of the Freedom Caucus. So, you know, I think he's going to want he's going to play he's going to play very big uh, in this. So I've been thinking about this, uh, these midterms. And, um, you know, uh, this happened in 2010. I I remember Obama calling me on election night in 2010. And he said uh, and he starts asking me about various members, you know, uh, Murphy in Pennsylvania, Perriello in Virginia. And he's going down the list of all these young members who he thought highly of. And I'm going, gone, gone, gone. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, and at the end, he said, uh, "We just lost the we just lost the future of our party." And he and he was really that was the thing that he was most dispirited uh, about. You this you you I know uh, McKinnon in, in one of your many iterations. Uh, you are you were with this group, No Labels. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, a, a lot of the people who are going to go down on both sides. I mean, there were, there, were, there are moderate Republicans like Fred Upton who are leaving. There are, and then you're going to lose on the Democratic side a lot of uh, these sort of so-called problem solvers, moderate yep. Democrats, because they're in swing districts. And and you know you can yep. be you know you if the president is at if the president is 12 points underwater and he's at 38 or 40 percent approval rating and you're in a plus three democratic district it's pretty hard the math doesn't work out for you that plus three was when biden was more popular well that's a great point i mean let's think about what what all this means for the future of both parties first of all any republican now at this point with upton out i think all but maybe one who voted to impeach trump or voted uh, for the committee are gone they, they all just they saw the writing on the wall and they're not even running um so that tells you about what you know who's going to get elected on the republican side on the democratic side not only i mean to your point about uh, when you were talking about uh, the the future of the party being you know going down during the election with obama uh, not only are people going to lose people people are just not even going to get in the fight people like stephanie murphy stephanie murphy in, i was going to say in, exactly in florida that. who we had on our show a couple of weeks ago i mean she i talk about a fantastic candidate and you know somebody that i just thought oh my god this is if this is the future of the democratic party there's some hope here for the democrats and then she just says you know what i'm out we should point out just because because i wanted i don't I, you, you know, I don't want Heilman and your colleagues to freak out. We should point out she didn't quit after appearing on your show. It wasn't <laughs> your show that killed her career. Uh, she she quit before that, right? So we should make that clear. Yeah, but but after the show, she said she said no public service anywhere ever. But to your point, McKinnon, you know, it's she's a she's somebody who you know in a in a tough year in 2016 beats a sitting Republican. Uh, you know, is 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 a blue dog Democrat, which uh, there there can't be many of left anymore. Uh, a group that formed not uh, not many weeks after the 1994 shellacking uh, for Democrats in Congress, and uh, you know, young, telegenic, uh, and great story, said, personal story, right? And and somebody who now is uh, is is walking off the playing field. Um, largely because they don't feel like they have a place. I, look, I think you're going to watch coming out of 2022. You're going to be, we shouldn't, the, the spotlight will be on what Republicans and sort of what they add to the Freedom Caucus. You know, don't mistake that the, the, the very liberal side, the progressive caucus, but also the squad is looking to add members. Yeah, they, yeah. they're going to, they're going to. Yeah, the real challenge is going to be that, the parties, the people that represent the parties in Congress are not emblematic of either party's actual base. I believe yeah. certainly in the Democratic and, side. And by the way, just just to back to the no labels experience. Explain what no labels is. Well, no labels is an organization that started in 2011 that was designed to kind of bridge the gap, bring people together, create more bipartisan dialogue, more problem solving between the parties. Uh, just really more bipartisanship. And what we realized very quickly was uh, that if we were trying to be a voice for the middle in Congress, there wasn't much middle left and that everybody had been pushed to the extremes. And there was a there's a magazine in Washington that does, a, you know, every couple of years does a study about how much crossover there is in Congress. In other words, how many what where are there sort of progressive Republicans that overlap with conservative Democrats? 
And when they did that study 20 years ago, 224 members of Congress overlapped. The last time they did the study, four people overlapped. So that kind of tells you that there's, yeah. there's four people left in the middle of Congress. And my point is, you know, there were, I thought the 2018 class, particularly uh, among women, uh, you know, there's some really great uh, women who came into Congress, uh, you know, uh, Spanberger in Virginia and Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan come to mind, Mikey Sherrill in Jersey. And, you know, a bunch of these people are going to lose yeah. uh, this time. So what you're going to have, my the main point I wanted to make was, uh, what you're going to have in 2023 is probably the most polarized Congress we've seen. Uh, there's going to be the middle is going to be much smaller. The uh, the 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 the, the uh, caucuses are going to be much more ideological. Yeah. By the way, David, one other member who's leaving, who I think you probably know because she's from Illinois, Sherry Bustos, who was a terrific yeah, member. Terrific. Terrific, terrific. Uh, who fits solidly in that class? Yeah, she won in a like a plus ten Trump district as a Democrat. And these are people who, by definition, uh, learn how to work across the aisle and learn to work yeah, with people. Exactly. You know, they they operate under the theory that I'm here to get stuff done, and I'm going to work with anybody who's willing to work with me. Uh, and, uh, and now you get penalized for that. You get primaried because of that. Okay, let's take a break right here for a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. You know, Gibbs, they say you are what you eat. Oh, Lord. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't even want to confront that. But how you feel is often about what you what you taste, what you put in your body. That's why I'm so happy we get to talk about Athletic Greens. So talk about it, Gibbs. This is a product you use literally every day. Athletic Greens, you know, you don't have a lot of time, but you want better gut health, more energy. You want to optimize your immune system. You You hate taking pills and vitamins. I sure do. And you want a supplement that actually tastes great. And you want to see what all the hype about Athletic Greens is all about. And so I love it, but our uh, executive producer, Allison, has uh, been using it too. And Allison, what about it, huh? It's excellent. There you go. It's excellent. You know why? Gibbs, tell them why. With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, yeah. probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day off right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy recovery, focus, and for you, acts aging. All of those things in just one glass. I take a double actually for that, but uh, just the things that you that that are real quality of life things: digestion, energy, all of that is helped by Athletic Greens. So. Yeah, and the great thing about it is it is lifestyle-friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything, while still tasting good. And you know what, Gibbs? It costs you less than $3 a day. That's not a lot to pay for feeling better, for better digestive health, all of the things that you get. If you're like us and you're on the road a little bit, it's easy to travel with. Tons of people take some kind of multivitamin, and it's important to choose one with high-quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. 
Athletic Greens is a small microhabit with big benefits. It's the one thing that you can do acts every single day to take good care of yourself. Right, right, right. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it, Gibbs. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash hacks. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash hacks to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. We saw it with the Gingrich Congress that they can misbehave in a way that strengthens Democrats going into 2024 potentially. But the cost uh, of a very polarized Congress uh, and a majority that has its main mission to kind of seek vengeance and retribution against the president uh, is uh, is going to be enormous for the country. It really worries me, and it makes me sad to think about the people who aren't going to be there uh, in two years. I, I mean, from a, I know we're now. I'm ve- I'm veering into. If Murphy were here, he'd he'd probably yell at us for not being hacky enough on this. You 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 would yell at us for not being hacky enough. Let's just be clear as you get into your League of Women Voters spiel here. Yes, that's true. I, Gibbs is still ouchy. This was an exchange we had like a year and a half ago, and he's still ouchy about this because I accused him of being a League of Women Voters uh, kind of guy. Here. My, my mother was a League of Women Voters, so I took it deeply personally, Axelrod. Well, now I know where it comes from. See? But I think we should we should be really deeply concerned for our democracy. And I don't look, you know, I, I think people have different points of view. If that were in the case, we'd have one party and everybody would agree on everything. I don't expect that. But when, when the incentives go out of the system to cooperate and all you have are people from districts where they can't lose except in a primary, uh, it's going to be, it comes becomes that much harder to, to govern, but one guy who has resisted this, whether you know he may not be everybody's cup of tea or cup of coal or oil, is uh, Joe Joe Manchin, uh, and there was a poll out yesterday uh, measuring how people's uh, favorable rating has has changed over the last year, and Manchin was the number one guy whose numbers have improved in his home state. He's now uh, he's now at fifty seven percent. He was at forty percent a year ago. He's at fifty seven percent in West Virginia, and you know why? Sixty nine percent approval rating among Republicans. Wow! <laughs> a couple other numbers that are important in that he's on the ballot in twenty twenty four, and he sits as the senator from a state where Joe Biden got twenty nine percent of the vote. So uh, you know it, it's always. When you look at, you don't have to like what Joe Manchin is doing if you're a Democratic activist. It, there's a method to the madness. Oh, right? for sure. This is not, and whether they're sending the vice president to do TV in West Virginia and poke him or AOC sends out a bunch of tweets, I can only presume that all that is done is bolster him every oh, step sure. of the way for almost two years now. 
I think he would take his campaign money and and put uh, AOC on tour in the state. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, That'd be a good investment of money. Listen, I I have real questions about, I mean, he he still gets half a million dollars a year from this coal business that his son now runs while he's sitting in Congress, sitting as chairman of the uh, of the uh, Energy and Commerce Committee uh, and passing judgment on environmental legislation. That, that's a concern, and I don't, know how that, I don't know how that happens. But I also think that Manchin represents his state. And, you know, I remember what, back in the, uh, when Pete Buttigieg, people forget this history, ran for chair of the Democratic National Committee for a minute and lost. He came to the IOP after he was on a panel after the whatever election that was, uh, 2000, I guess it was 2016, and, and he talked about the future of the party. And some kid stood up and said, why should we support a guy like Joe Manchin who doesn't reflect anything that we believe in? And uh, Buttigieg said, well, I guess I'd say to you, I'm for the most progressive candidate who can win. And if you have a candidate in West Virginia who you think can do better than Manchin and is closer to your view, then support him. But uh, I think you're gonna have a hard time finding that candidate. And it, you know, Manchin, you know, in 2000, and Democrats are worried about the Senate this year. In 2024, a presidential year, they've got John Tester uh, up in Montana. Uh, they've got uh, Sherrod Brown up in Ohio. They've and they've got Manchin up in uh, West Virginia. Based on what you see right now, you'd say Manchin is the only one who'll probably survive. Well, and, and Dave used to put a point on it. And I wouldn't bet on him. You know, I hear all the the grumbling, of course, on the Democratic side about Manchin. And I just have to remind my friends to say, listen, he won uh, in a year in which Trump got 70% of the vote there. Yep. 71. Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, there's no other Democrat that, that could have or would have won. Um, and so you would have. Uh, so your only option is a Republican senator. And as much as you dislike Joe Manchin, he was still like the 50th vote or 51st on your Supreme Court right. nominee. Well, <laughs> so. and every court nominee and on uh, Bill Back Better and uh, a whole bunch of other things. So, yeah, it's easy to say, expel him, drive him over. If if Joe Manchin and he easily could, if he decided, hey, I'm walking across the aisle, I'll just join their caucus. Mitch McConnell's majority leader. Right. Yeah. And then you get no judges. and The whole uh, thing shuts down. Yeah. So, I mean, you have to be really, really thoughtful about how you, uh, how you evaluate this guy. One correction there, and I rarely am in a position to correct uh, my, you, McKinnon, but uh, he ran in 2018, not 2020. So right. Right. He, uh, got, um, he got, he won, only won by three points in 2018. So to Gibbs's point, you know, you'd think he'd be in jeopardy in 2024. He may not be now. He may actually be in a position where I always thought he can't run for re-election. Trump won that state by 40 points, and he still may not be able to run for re-election. But when you're sitting there with a 69% approval rating, now Trump hasn't started carving on him yet, uh, and so that that number could go yeah. down again. But him, you know, him uh, dissenting from uh, Biden and getting beaten up by the left, to your point, Gibbs, that's been nothing but oh. uh, nothing but a gift uh, to Manchin. In-kind campaign contributions. I mean, he, he ought to be reporting them on his FEC report. No, I think there's 
It'll be interesting to see, uh, David, to your point in 2024, does how hard does Mitch McConnell look for uh, a Republican? How uh, My guess is pretty damn hard. And my guess is that you're going to see, to Mark's point, a lot of discussion about Supreme Court justices, judicial nominations, and, and other votes. And look, m- you know, Manchin can be crafty, right? Before he voted for Judge Jackson, he he essentially killed the nomination, uh, a, a Biden nomination uh, at the Fed. And I have no doubt that he was thinking to himself, you know what I need? I need a series of headlines that show me being really hard on this president before I have to give the vote that I'm going to make on the Supreme Court. And I think, you know, he's 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 navigated West Virginia well. It's a great whitewater rafting state if you haven't been. He's navigated that that river well. I just don't know if there's a waterfall at the end of it. Did you like that? Yes, very picturesque of you. I feel like very- I'm, uh, I'm now West Virginia Tourism Bureau. I ju- but I just thought he said, you know, he lives on a houseboat in Washington. And I just thought he sits sits there and he calculates what's best for the country and votes his conscience. And that's what he says. So you're saying there's calculation involved. I'm right? saying there's, there's, there's politics and politics. Yeah. So let me ask you guys something before we get to uh, questions. In Ukraine, with the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of State visited, and Gibbs, you and I were talking about this before the show. Yeah. Secretary of Defense says our mission is uh, to disable the Russian army so that they can never do this again. The day after that, like today, Lavrov, the foreign minister, makes a public pronouncement that we're closer to nuclear war than uh, people think. I'm old enough to remember the last time we were ducking under desks in the uh, classroom. Me too. I, yeah. I remember the air raids. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the yeah, duck yeah. and cover under our desk. But let me ask you guys, just getting back to politics, Mark Penn wrote a piece in the times and he said that people Uh-oh, where's I, this going <laughs> no 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 this is forget forget about my forget about my feelings about Penn. the the column was you know damn i was gonna i was hoping for a stem the usual it was the usual tablets you know from the uh, from uh, down from the mountains about what democrats need to do to win but he did say you know people are feeling very uneasy which i think is true i think that there is this sense of chaos out there but he really featured and now they're worried about nuclear war do you think people are worried about nuclear war is that really has that you think that has risen he he cited some poll and i have to go back and find it is this adding to the sense of chaos and concern and fear that people feel about the times in which we live well, I think it's just one more domino in the in the you know in in the concerns about Biden generally. I, I've been surprised, frankly, guys, the extent to which, as I've gone around the country and doing the show, that it's that Ukraine is just generally not on people's screen. You know, I think that's mostly because the domestic issues are so hot. You know. When you're at the gas station and watching the numbers go up, you're not thinking about Ukraine, even though actually it is somewhat related. Somewhat <laughs> yes, related. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. but, or when you go to the store or, or when you try and buy a house and it's hard to find one that you can afford because they're all inflated. And yeah, I mean, I think people quite naturally think about the things that touch on your, their lives. But I think the virus. Uh, help create this sense of unease that still is with us. And I've said before, Biden's Biden's political problem isn't about any one particular issue. It's a sense that uh, things are sort of chaotic and he's not really in command. And uh, that's a hard thing to overcome because I think a lot of it is 
performance related. Well, and to and the point about Penn, David, was Penn sort of said, you know, all the the things that have collapsed on Biden are like you know, everything possible. You sort of go out throughout history and see what presidents have faced. He's facing them all. Right. You know, on Ukraine, for example, I think he's done a really credible job. He's held the alliance together. Uh, I think he's done really, really a good job. But uh, all people see on TV is continued death and destruction to the extent they care about it. It yeah. doesn't look like we're, we've got control of the situation there. So I think certainly, you know, th- this is why even before the shooting ever started, Biden always began discussions about Ukraine, reminding voters that our troops weren't going over there. And it's clearly played into the calculus of not getting into a no fly zone, uh, which right. would, which would put our troops directly in likely in combat with with the Russians. But I, I think. Look, to your point on unease and chaos with Ukraine, it's probably only going to continue to increase. You know, clearly, I, I think I mean, I personally think Biden seems to be thinking and feeling differently about Ukraine over the course of the last sort of eight to 10 weeks of this invasion. You know, a war criminal, a butcher, genocide. I, yeah. I, I, I think increasingly his gaffe in, in Warsaw may have not as much been a gaffe, but, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, a foreshadowing of where he's going. But the, the, the challenge is going to be, to your point, David, that rhetoric is likely to increase because, you know, the U.S. has is, is got to hope at some point that there's a, there's a, there's a negotiation for peace. And, and yeah, you can't afford futility. Yeah. No, but in, in order to do that, you're going to have to up the rhetoric so that Putin decides, okay, you know what, I'll take well, that's this a risk territory. That, you know, but there's risk associated. Out, last point on this, and, we'll, and we should uh, get to our committed, brilliant listeners who, who have questions. But, you know, on this chaos issue, one of those headaches, McKinnon, is the border. Uh, mm-hmm. McCarthy and crew were down there the other day. Yesterday, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and that's likely to kick up in the next uh, couple of months. Not only kick up, David, but I mean, to your point, actually, Republicans, I mean, it's J.D. Vance is a good example. It's like, why the hell should we care about Ukraine? But there are others. I, I forget who said it, but it's like, why are we caring about the border of Ukraine and Russia when we have what's going on in our border, Joe Biden? Let's pay attention to the to, to our own border. And that that is a situation that is... It's such a powerful Republican talking point, and it's bad and getting worse, and there's just like nothing in sight that suggests that that situation is going to get any better. Yeah. You know, you got to ask yourself, why does anybody want this job? (laughs) I've been saying that for a while. It's like, why would anybody want to be president of the free world uh, in the current circumstances? Yeah. I mean, you you get a house, you get a plane, and I get all that, but man, what a pile of headaches comes with it. Unbelievable. Yeah, for for a Democratic president, the border situation is just a no-win situation. And it's certainly, you know, it's going to play out a bunch this week. We're going to see it. The head of Homeland Security is uh, is on Capitol Hill for three hearings. Uh, He's probably the guy they want to impeach. Right. He's going to get beat up by Democrats who are on the ballot who don't want to see uh, the pictures that we've seen really for the last two administrations. Uh, And and Republicans feel like they've got a free target. I mean, I think the one thing that may actually bail Biden out on this is not having to pick because a federal judge who temporarily um, blocked the administration from lifting the order. The, the courts may actually solve the political problem in the near term for Biden in a way in which he doesn't have to further split Democrats by picking between endangered 2022 um, uh, uh election seekers uh, and uh, and you know Hispanic members who uh, are on the other side of this. 
All right, man. Jeff, hit it. It's listener mailbag. A little homage to Mike Murphy there. Robert Gibbs, Eric asks, why don't we just have all the primaries on the same day? Then you'll actually get an idea of which candidate performs well on the national level and without all the gamesmanship that will inevitably come from picking any state to have uh, to act as a weather vane. That this is a you know the DNC is trying to decide the yeah. order of primaries now. So this is a topical question. Eric, I'm just going to say your question sounds like an existential problem for the Hacks on Tap podcast. I just want you to know that like... Yeah, because we're all about gamesmanship here, yeah. What exactly are we going to talk about for like 15 weeks if we don't have this rolling cascade of primaries and caucus? Eric, get with the program, man. Come on. Look, there there have been people that have have talked about this idea of a national primary. Obviously, what it would do is put a lot of emphasis... Probably a lot more emphasis on raising money, even more so than it already is in this process, because if you're running in California, Florida, Texas and every other state all on the same day, uh, you you better have you'd have to have a lot of money. You're not going to have a a candidate like Jimmy Carter isn't going to win Iowa because he's shaking hands and writing thank you notes. Um, But, David, you sort of walked into this question by talking about this process now and Iowa is, I think, in real danger of of not only not being first, but not being in the top four. And the the DNC has asked states to essentially compete for those top four positions. New Hampshire, we know, is probably not going to change. It's albeit not very representative of what America looks like, but they've got a state law that my guess is they're not going to violate. Nevada, I, I think, is a real possibility to move up from uh, sort of third to first because uh, it's got a population that looks a bit more like a lot more like the Democratic electorate does writ large with a larger black and Hispanic population. And then South Carolina, which, you know, we know from our experience. What about about Michigan, man? They want to make a play. Michigan could be good. New Jersey could be good. I think you've got to add a midsize or a little bit larger soon to be swing state. I mean, the the great thing about Iowa, David, when we were there in 2008 was it was a swing state. You're out yeah. there, you're out there. I would look at a place Michigan could be that place, North Carolina could be that yeah, place. Yeah, North Carolina, yeah. You know, I think something that looks like America. Just to the larger question, this is a profoundly bad idea, Eric, because it will lock in the front runners, it will lock in the candidates with money. Barack Obama never would have been elected president if there was one national primary. He had to have a testing ground. We lost by 20 points. Yeah. So the crucible of a long primary campaign is when you find out what these candidates are have. And McKinnon was through a primary in 2000, and McCain profited from early victory in New Hampshire. And Bush profited from taking that punch and coming back. And, you know, you learn a lot about candidates in this process. And it's the only the only way that people, average Americans, actually get to interact with candidates is because we have this primary system where candidates have to meet individually with people. So anyway, Eric, you're a, obviously a very bright guy because you listen to Hacks on Tap. This isn't a good idea. McKinnon, this is the issue of the of the day, I guess. Um, you know, we have oligarchs in America, and this is about one of them. We, I haven't heard you discuss Elon Musk and his bid for Twitter, and love, and I'd love to hear your take 
What drives me nuts about Elon's free speech and public square blather is the fantasy that his imagined public square is equal. I notice it's usually rich white dudes who yammer on about limits on their free speech because it seems to me money buys you a whole lot more of it. You're a rich white dude. What do you say? <laughs> well, wow. I'm the guy I'm the guy who wrote a column in 2009 that Twitter was a crazy, ridiculous business model and it'd be ridiculous for anybody to invest any money in Twitter. That it was a bad business model. So, by the way, McKinnon, <laughs> McKinnon is Gaelic for really lousy investor. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I think this could be a, a classic example of the, the dog catching the car. It's like, you know, it seems great in theory, uh, but, you know, he's, he's, he's put out some ideas, ideas like, you know, ensuring that everybody on the platform is an actual human being. And and how he executes that is going to be, and he's going to find out why it's so hard. And so yeah. I, I think that it, this is one of those things that, in theory, you know, he loved, and I think it's going to be overnight a huge headache. And you know, I think he's going to be pretty quickly thinking, how do I get, how do I get this chain off my axle? Content moderation on these platforms, as you mentioned, McKinnon, it's just enormously difficult. Enormously difficult. And what I worry about, it, I think, what we all worry about is. Does free speech also include fact-free speech? And and that's yeah. the that's yeah, the yeah. the sort of disinformation pool that we're already swimming in. Interestingly, Trump said he wasn't going yeah. back on Twitter yeah. because he's got his own thing well, that doesn't yeah. work. This is actually not good for Trump because Trump was hoping yeah. to gather up all the alienated right wingers who were mad at Twitter for throwing him and others off and have them come to his. And now uh, likely. Musk yes. will allow all of them back, and that's a. Uh, but the the one idea he has that I really like is that every uh, everyone who does a million tweets gets a free trip to the moon on SpaceX, <laughs> which I think is going to be a huge promotional uh, thing. Yeah, Trigvar asks, how important is a slogan for a presidential campaign? Are slogans like "Yes, we can make America great again" garniture on a cake? Or an important part of the cake itself. If a candidate runs against Trump, what would be a good slogan? Answer this, X, while I Google garniture. Yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, that is, uh, I didn't even know that was a word. I, unclear if it is. Yeah. I've tried it in Wordle and it didn't work. This used to drive, I mean, I was the one who, yes, we can, was something that I came up with for Obama's Senate campaign that lived on. but Which he hated. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. But. I have to say, I always thought that the painful exercise of getting to a slogan was the test of whether you could reduce your, your, the message of your campaign to its irreducible core. And I think that's actually a really good exercise. The campaigns that are generally in distress are the ones that roll out seven different slogans, you know, Been in there, a done campaign. That. So I, I think uh, it's more than garniture on the cake. It essentially tells you what the cake is made of. In that sense, I think it's it's really important. But McKinnon, what would your uh, if you were running against Trump and assuming that crazy is bad is a bad slogan? <laughs> well, I, first I, first of all, really, when you think about slogan, what you should think about in terms of what's effective is what you want for your campaign is a clear, compelling rationale in the simplest right. way you can articulate right. that. And so slogans don't mean anything unless it gets to the core rationale of why you're running. And that's why Make America Great Again was so brilliant because yes. whether or not you agreed with it, you knew what it was and you knew why Trump was running. And it, that's a coded thing that people could read a lot into. But basically it was saying, I'm kind of afraid of the future for once in America. Let's take a step back 
back to the yeah. old days. Let's give credit where credit is due. It was Ronald Reagan who first used that slogan in, in, in during the 1980. Uh, That's right. So Trump gets a lot of credit for it. Well, he copyrighted it the day after the 2012 election. So that was pretty smart on his part. Uh, I mean, basically, Biden's mantra was 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 really you just make America sane again. It's just like I'm not I'm not Trump. And maybe some version we'll have to see. But I also think, too, that, you know, your your part about simplistic and rationale is really important. I think also the key is a contrast. It has to be subtle, right? You're not, you, it's not usually something you're, you're beating somebody over the head with, but you know, change, change you can believe in was, right. uh, was not, well, well, it was subtle, but it wasn't subtle, but it also was a, a good contrast with who Obama was running against in the Democratic primary, right? Particularly around things yeah. like, like Iraq. It's not just, hey, where do you think your candidacy sits, but how does that push off of others? Exactly right. That is such an interesting process to get that because it does force you to think about your fundamental yeah. arguments. You know, relative to the question about Trump in a ser- seriously, you know, I think the thing that people are going to want to confront is do they want to go back to that? And so some, I don't know what the slogan is, but I do think the, the notion of the future and the past is important, but probably more so if Biden is not the candidate, <laughs> that will work than if he is the candidate. But I do think America, if Trump is the candidate, is going to have to confront that question. So there's a whole process. The slogan is the end of the process. It's not a, a disconnected. There's a whole process. Yeah. That go- I remember the long, long meetings and really talking through our research and what we were trying to express and what we were trying to get to. So it's not just like, well, that sounds good. Let's do that. Oh, and it's a painful process. I remember going through it with Ann Richards, man. It's, what's my message? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, and yeah, yeah. And, you know, the slogan doesn't always come at the beginning of the race. I mean, I think people are like, you know, and, and Democrats have this, like, we can't put our stuff on a bumper sticker. Well, it takes a little time. I mean, you know, you got to get into a little bit of the back and forth of this to understand that your slogan, again, works inside of the campaign and contrasts with the person that you're up against. Boys, we're out of time here. McKinnon, you're on break now, right? At the yes, circus. Yeah, we're taking a little break, but love kicking it with you guys as usual. And we'll be tuned I'll be tuning in all summer to keep up so that I know what I'm talking about when I get back to the circus in the fall. And we'll all see you in the we'll we'll have you back, of course, but we'll also see you uh in the fall. And Gibbs, I'll see you very soon. Looking forward to it. And also to uh to our buddy Murphy, feel better. Yes. You know people miss his uh his cutting humor. So uh, Hey guys, yes, get better quickly. Uh hope your wheel gets better and now that we have, the three of us have a Colorado connection, let's do a retreat out here. Absolutely. Well, and as to Murphy, I think he had a little knee surgery so, and all for the purpose of being able to kick ass better. So uh he'll only be better when he comes back uh and hopefully that will be as soon as next week. All right, guys. We'll see you next time. Carry on regardless. Talk soon. 